Welcome back to Roots Music History. Buckle up because we are about to deep dive into the Leonard Skinnerd plane crash that killed three of the Leonard Skinnerd members in 1977. I'm going to assume that you know who Leonard Skinnerd is. I've taken all of the newspaper clippings, all of the firsthand reports. I've taken interviews from the first responders who arrived on scene. I've taken the interviews from two of the people who lived about two miles out from the crash who were farmers nearby and their testimonies of what they saw and heard. So you really have to take all of it though and then say, okay, where are the consistencies in everyone's story and what actually happened here? But this is gonna be a long video because there's a lot to unpack. No puns intended with my verbiage. <laughs> Buckle up, we're gonna deep dive. There's a lot to unpack. So I want to start by talking about the plane Leonard Skinnerd was on and the reason they were on that plane to begin with. The plane that they were on was a Convair CV240, but it was about 30 years old and it needed a lot of work. They weren't always on old planes that needed a lot of work. In fact, for the majority of their tours up until 1977, they were flying on private charters. However, Leonard Skinnerd had a reputation of being a little bit rowdy, just a little. <laughs> <laughs> and trashing the planes, basically. They actually were banned from riding on private chartered planes. Their manager, their band manager, not their tour manager, because that's different. Dean Kilpatrick was also referred to as their manager. He was on the plane. We'll get into that later. They had a band manager named Peter Rudge, and Peter was also the manager for Aerosmith. After Leonard Skinner got banned from riding on private chartered planes, Peter Rudge was in a position where he had to find them their own leased plane that they could trash. There seems to be a little bit of a tiff, not a tiff, but like frustration between the band members and Peter Rudge about this situation. Peter Rudge apparently finds this Convair CV240 that's 30 years old. The band hated it. They thought it was an enormous step down from the private planes that they were used to flying on. Peter Rudge apparently was just kind of like, well, too bad guys, this is what you get. Peter Rudge actually insisted on flying first class commercial flights rather than flying on this plane with Leonard Skinner, which rubbed the band members the wrong way. Leading up to October 20th, 1977, the band was flying on this plane pretty frequently. The plane had just been in Dallas, Texas. It was picking up the light crew and the sound crew and flying them to Jacksonville, Florida, where they would have a couple of more shows before heading to South Carolina. Three days before October 20th, the plane was flying from Florida to Greenville, South Carolina, when the band reportedly saw a six-foot flame come out of the right engine as they were taking off. Clearly, this concerned a lot of the members on board. Nobody wants to see fire coming out of an engine as they're taking off. At that moment, a lot of the band members said, this is not going to work. We cannot fly this plane. Someone has to look at it. Three days later, they were scheduled to fly from Greenville, South Carolina, to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. There was a man named Gene Odom who was their head of security and their drummer, Artemis Pyle, his father, actually Artemis's father, died in a plane crash. So Artemis took this flame coming out of the right engine pretty seriously, as did Gene Odom. The two of them were really advocating to have a maintenance crew look at the plane 
in South Carolina before they were going to go to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The pilots insisted the maintenance guy was in Baton Rouge and they were not going to fly him from Louisiana to South Carolina to look at the plane. He would just look at the plane once they got to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. With all of these conversations going on, the women were very against having their husbands get on the plane. Many of the wives begged their husbands not to get on it, call it a woman's intuition or whatever you want to call it. The women who were on the plane were also feeling a little uneasy, especially Cassie Gaines. She really didn't want to get on the plane. She didn't like flying to begin with. She went on and on and on about how she didn't want to fly. And I don't know if it was her apprehension that kind of spread to the other band members, but there was another man named Mark Howard who was part of the either the lighting crew or the sound crew. I can't remember actually, but he also didn't want to get on the plane. The way that the people describe it, Ronnie insisted, not just Ronnie, but really the whole Leonard Skinner band was kind of saying to the crew, well, either you fly home or you get on this plane and you fly to Baton Rouge with us. And they weren't necessarily pressuring them to get on the plane, but at the same time, there was really no other option. There was no other plane and they had a job to do. They were on tour. This was the tour they were hired to do. They really didn't have that big of a choice other than to get on the plane and do their job. Right before the crash, Cassie says to Ronnie Van Zandt, who was the lead singer of Leonard Skinnerd, I don't want to get on this plane. And Ronnie looked at her and he said, if God wants you to die on this plane, you're going to die on the plane. And Cassie did die on that plane. The plane took off from Greenville, South Carolina, and everything seemed fine, which gave the band members actually a lot of comfort because when they had flown from Florida to South Carolina, it was during takeoff that they saw these flames come out of the engine. They were actually talking on the plane about how they had brand new tour buses, not only brand new tour buses, but a brand new plane waiting for them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It was either in Baton Rouge that all these tour buses were, or it was their trip that was gonna be right after that. It was soon following, and they were all kind of celebrating the fact that this was their last flight on this piece of crap airplane. And they really felt like they had to get new things because at this point, their album Street Survivors had gone gold in less than 72 hours. All of the luggage tags said Survivors Tour. Creepy. So there were 26 people on board this flight I am actually going to read each person's name. If you want to skip forward, there are chapters at the bottom of the video. Kevin Elson, who was in critical condition. Don Tretschman, I'm sure I'm not saying that right. Kenneth Pedden, who was part of the crew. Mark Frank, he was 25. This was a young group on board. Gary Rossington, the guitarist, he was 25. Leon Wilkinson, the bassist. Alan Collins, the other guitarist, also 25. Joe Osborne, crew, Bill Sykes, crew. I'm going to read a couple of crew. Craig Reed. Gene Odom was the security. Mark Howard. Steve Lawler. Ron Ackerman. Billy Powell, the keyboardist, also 25. Leslie Ann Hawkins. She was giving Ronnie a massage on the plane because he had back trouble before he fell asleep from his sleeping pills. Clayton Johnson. James Bracey, who was in critical condition. Paul Welch. I think Paul might have been the youngest. He was 22. Artemis Pyle, the drummer. Ronnie Van Zant, the lead singer. Steve Gaines, who played guitar. And his sister, not wife, Cassie Gaines. 
Dean Kilpatrick, who was the tour manager, not to be confused with Peter Rudge, who was the manager of Leonard Skinner and Aerosmith in New York. Walter McCreary was the pilot, and John Gray was the co-pilot. There are some rumors the pilots were partying the night before, or that they were high, or that they were drunk. The toxicology reports deny this. There were 26 people on board and 20 of them survived. Leonard Skinner, by the way, was notorious for having an enormous faith in God. They were extremely religious. One of their albums is actually called God and Guns. They are known for wearing these big crosses around their neck, which is one of the reasons they were one of the first bands that I did a Roots Music History documentary on. They were just incredibly faithful. As I mentioned, a woman named Leslie was on the flight. She was giving Ronnie the massage. She was a honkette with a woman named Jojo Billingsley. Jojo was supposed to be on the flight with the band and crew. A week before Jojo was supposed to fly with them, she had a terrible nightmare. She dreamt that the plane crashed and went up in flames, even though the plane did not have any fire associated with it. It did in her dream. She woke up from this dream screaming. Her mother came in the room to see what was wrong, and she just said, Mom, I just had the worst dream. I dreamt that the plane crashed, and she did not get on that plane. A lot of the band members say that Ronnie would repeatedly tell them he was not going to live to see 30. He'd say, I don't think I'm gonna live to see 30. He would say, I think I'm gonna go with my boots on, which meant as a musician that you would pass away on tour. Ronnie was just shy of 30 when this plane crash occurred. And there's also a lot of rumors the band was heavily, heavily partying on the flight. Like I said, they were kind of celebrating because it was one of their last flights, but they were not carrying with them loads and loads of drugs. They had some pharmaceuticals. It was the 70s, by the way. If you haven't seen my video about the mysterious death of Elvis Presley, I go into the 1970s and the pharmaceutical movement. Pharmaceuticals were big back then, and the band did have pharmaceutical drugs, but it was they were not carrying like loads of cocaine, as some people are reporting. Ronnie did have sleeping pills after they had done a couple of toasts to celebrate the fact that it was one of their last flights. Leslie started helping Ronnie with his back in the front of the plane. You kind of had benches in the front of the plane, and then there were more seats in the back, and there were some tables in the back where people would play poker. Now, a lot of times, Ronnie would actually be in the back of the plane playing poker, but on this particular day, his back was hurting him, and he was in the front of the plane so that he could lay down and stretch out. Gary Rossington says that that's one of the things he thinks about quite frequently is what if Ronnie had been in the back of the plane? What if all of them had been in their usual spots in the back playing poker? Uh, but that just wasn't the seating arrangement on this fateful day. After they take off, there were no flames, everything seemed fine, the band is kind of celebrating. At one point, dancing actually started to break out. He described it kind of like a little party scene, like a little party bus, but on an airplane. Then there was a group playing poker in the back. That group consisted of Artemis Pyle and Mark Howard and a couple other crew members. And then you had the main band members at the front of the plane, Gary Rossington, Alan Collins, Ronnie Van Zandt, Steve Gaines, 
and Cassie Gaines and the two pilots. Gene Odom was close to the front of the plane. He was like front middle, kind of. Like I said, he was the head of security. Gene had been speaking to the pilots that entire day. He was insisting the maintenance person look at the plane before they take off. Gene was a little bit perturbed that they weren't looking at the plane, but he was relieved as well when they were about an hour, an hour and a half into the flight and nothing had been going wrong. However, about an hour, hour and a half into the flight, the right engine started sputtering. Now, if you remember, this is the engine that released a six foot flame from it just three days prior. When the right engine started sputtering, Gene Odom leaped into action and went to the pilots and said, you should land the plane and look at the engine. The pilots kind of just shook him off and Gene was very frustrated. A few minutes later, the right engine completely failed. When the right engine failed, Gene and Artemis both went up to the cockpit and were giving the pilots some choice words. Artemis came back from the cockpit, told the people in the back of the plane that the right engine had failed. The people in the back of the plane knew that the engine failed. They saw and heard it and they basically said, yeah, we know, we know. Artemis says the first thing he thought of was his father's death because his father died in a plane crash. He said that when he looked at the pilots, he quote, saw the look of death. The pilots knew that this was not a good situation. Gene's in the cockpit, pretty much cussing out the pilots because he's so angry they didn't listen to him. After the right engine failed, the pilots looked at their fuel and realized they were low on fuel. They called the air traffic control tower in Houston, Texas. They told them that they were low on fuel and they needed the closest airport immediately. Air traffic control in Houston told them that the closest airport was the Macomb, which was actually behind them. They had already passed it. The pilots started to turn the plane around to go to the Macomb airport. As they were turning the plane around, it was right after they had made the turn, the left engine also gave out. Now the pilots had no engine. After the left engine also failed, the plane completely disengaged the steering controls. So now the pilots had no engines and no control of the steering wheel, and they were low on fuel. After the left engine gave out, Gene Odom went back up to the cockpit and started cursing out the pilots. At one point he said to the pilots, I hope that you live through this so that I can with my bare hands once we land. I mean, that's how upset he was that they didn't listen to him. And the pilots just <laughs> said to him, go back to your seat, buckle up, tell everyone to put their head between their knees, we're going to land in a field. Gene Odom came out from the cockpit. He told everyone to buckle their seatbelts, put their head between their knees, they were going to land in a field. By this time, Ronnie had taken his sleeping pills and was sleeping on the floor near the front of the plane. Now this is where some of the recollections differ. There are people in the back of the plane who report Ronnie during all of this got up and came to the back of the plane to get a pillow and then went back to the front of the plane. One of the survivors in the back of the plane says that he thought that Ronnie thought that he was going to die and that Ronnie was just getting the pillow like trying to act like everything was fine. Gene Odom, who was near the front of the plane, says that Ronnie was sleeping and really had no idea what was going on. He also recalls that there was a pillow, but he doesn't say when Ronnie got the pillow, if it was as the plane was crashing or long before all of this started occurring. Gene says he did try to get Ronnie off of the floor and buckle him up in the seats, and that Ronnie kept saying to Gene, leave me alone, dude, leave me alone. I just want to sleep. I just want to sleep. Stop messing with me. Stop messing with me. Whether Ronnie knew that the plane was crashing or not is up for debate. Something we will probably never know because none of us are 
Ronnie, ourselves. The plane was circling and descending at a very rapid rate. There's a farmer who lived about five miles from the crash site who reportedly saw the plane overhead. My wife and I were out sitting in our backyard and we heard this plane come over with it sounded like it run on one engine and uh, then all of a sudden I heard that engine go out. It took about 10 minutes for the plane to descend to the point that it was hitting trees. People said it was completely silent on the plane. Compare that to the partying that had just been happening in the first two hours of the flight. There was dancing, there was partying, they were playing poker. It was kind of like a party scene. Reportedly, someone got mad at the poker game and kind of took the table and just ripped it off from the wall of the plane, which is just exhibit A, why they were banned from private charters. You compare that scene to now knowing that they're going to crash the 10 minutes of dissension of just silence. It's so eerie to think about how the mood had changed in the plane. As they were descending, several people started to pray. One of the survivors of the crew said, quote, it would take you about five seconds to become a born-again Christian in that moment if you weren't one. All of them were buckled up and were ready for the plane to hit the ground. Everybody still thought they were going to land in a field. They didn't know how that was going to go, but obviously landing in a field is better than landing in a wooded area full of trees. When the band members and the crew started hearing what sounded like, quote, a hundred baseball bats hitting the plane, they realized they were hitting trees. They didn't understand what was happening right away. They heard the sounds of boom, 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 boom on the plane and it took them a second to process that they were hitting trees. Somebody on board pointed out the window and yelled, trees. And that's when everybody realized that they were hitting trees. All of us knew we were going to crash. We had no idea we were going to crash into a heavy wooded area. He thinks it was about 15 seconds or so. The plane skidded through these trees before it came to a crash. The plane ultimately crashed in a wooded, swampy area on a property that was owned by someone named Lisa Easley. They were just 200 yards away from the open field. Because the plane had nosedived, it was the folks in the front of the plane who took the hardest hit and who passed away. The two pilots, Ronnie Van Zandt, Steve and Cassie Gaines, and Dean Kilpatrick, who was the tour manager. One of the wings of the plane was completely detached and was several yards away from the plane. The plane had broken into several pieces. The cockpit was twisted and upside down. Gary Rossington remembers kind of waking up and feeling this enormous pressure on top of him. And it was one of the plane doors. He didn't know it was the plane door, but he knew it was some part of the plane that had landed on him. Gary remembers calling and screaming for Dean Kilpatrick saying Dean Dean where are you get this off of me get this off of me just very typical to reach out to the manager because the manager does everything <laughs> Dean came and pulled the door off of Gary saving Gary's life after Dean pulled the plane off of Gary Rossington Dean passed away on scene the hospital staff said it was impossible that he could have lifted a plane door off of Gary Rossington's body Dean had all of these injuries Gary says you know but he did Gary a hundred percent believes that it was the Holy Spirit Spirit, giving Dean that strength. Dean, our road manager, get this thing off of me. Well, Dean walked over and threw that piece of metal off of me. 
a few weeks later, a doctor told me that he couldn't have done that. So it was his spirit. Now, where they had landed was a very, very remote area. In fact, not only was it surrounded by trees, but it was surrounded by these swampy grounds, almost like little rivers that went up waist high, filled with snakes and insects and bugs and wildlife. After the plane had crashed, Artemis Pyle and two other members of the crew were okay. Artemis had broken ribs and he was in bad shape, but he was able to walk. And the other two were also able to walk. They were all covered in blood, all three of them. And I think that part of his ribs were sticking out. That's how broken they were. They had punctured through the flesh. So these three decide to set off on foot to find the nearest farmhouse. After taking a few steps away from the plane, one of the three men said that he just couldn't make it. He said, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can walk. And Artemis told him to touch a tree because the tree would give him energy and give him life. Now, Artemis was a vegetarian. He was very spiritual, very into nature and into the energies that nature provides you. So they start walking through these swamps that are waist deep through the trees. They make it to a pasture full of cows. They realize when they see the herd of cows that there's got to be a farm close by. The neighbor who lived about five miles away who saw the plane circling and heard the engine sputtering, his name was Donald Chase, and he was a young farmer in his 20s. And there was another man who lived closer to the crash named Johnny Moat. Johnny was a 22-year-old farmer who lived on his farm with his wife, Barbara. He heard the plane crash. He says it sounded like a loud rumble and almost sounded like gravel being thrown up in the air. When he heard the plane crash, he thought that it was a car crash. Johnny ended up getting in his pickup truck and driving around his farm looking for a crash. He didn't see anything, so he gets in his pickup truck and goes back to his farm to continue his farm chores. Once he's back at his farm, he loads his pickup truck with hay and drove his pickup truck out to his cow pasture. In the cow pasture, Johnny Moat starts unloading the hay when he sees Artemis Pyle emerge from the woods covered in blood limping, looking really, really bad. Johnny immediately thought this was a convict, someone who had escaped the local prison. In fact, Johnny had just seen a search helicopter, he says, over his property soon before the crash. Now, who knows what that search helicopter was looking for. It could have been looking for anything. It could have been the news crew, you know, making a news report on the crops that year. Johnny remembers seeing the helicopter, and now he sees this man emerging from the woods. So he assumes that it is a prisoner who escaped. So Johnny gets in his pickup truck and speeds back to his farmhouse, where he grabs his rifle. He also tells his wife, Barbara, to call 911 because there's a prisoner headed towards them. He gets back in his pickup truck with his rifle and drives back out to the cow pasture to keep an eye on this guy and to see what direction he ends up walking. Obviously, Artemis is walking straight towards his house because Artemis is looking for help. So Johnny sees him getting closer and closer and realizes that he is headed straight towards his house. He's not just wandering the woods. Once Artemis got close enough that he was in range, Johnny Moat fired a warning shot over Artemis's head. This was just a warning shot. 
But after he did that, the two other survivors of the plane crash also emerged from the woods. So Johnny is thinking this guy's got backup and this warning shot, you know, didn't intimidate them at all. In fact, it might have given them a little bit of reason to bring in the reinforcements out of the woods. So after he sees the other two emerge from the woods, he then fires another shot. This time, this shot hit Artemis in the shoulder. Now, after Johnny fired that second shot, and mind you, he was just trying to protect his property and his family. After he fired the second shot, they start screaming towards him and yelling, no, 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 no. We don't know. We're, no, we're not. We're not. We're not here to hurt you. We're not here to do anything. We don't know who you think we are, but our plane crashed. We're in a crash. crash. And so then Johnny hears them say crash. And then they say we were just by the, the pasture of cows and this and that. And Johnny hears cows crash. And he sees that they've got their hands up and realizes that they're actually in trouble. So in that moment, Johnny says, oh, crap. You know, he says, come on, come. Okay, come here, come here. He actually gets in his truck and drives to meet the three men so that he can pick them up in his truck. You know, this immediately changes the vibe. He realizes they're not escaped prisoners. He drives up to them and he says, get in the truck. What happened? Tell me the full story. Johnny knew that this was true because he heard a crash. He just couldn't find it in his pickup truck when he was driving down his gravel roads. So now this is lining up for Johnny. He gets the men in his truck. He speeds them back to his farmhouse. He gets out of the car with the three men. Barbara comes out of the house like, oh my God, why did you pick them up? What are you doing? And Johnny says, Barbara, Barbara, I was wrong, Babs. These people did not escape a prison. They actually crashed and they're in trouble. And so then Barbara says, oh my gosh, well, I just called and told them that, you know, you guys were trying to hurt us. Barbara runs back into the house, calls the sheriff's office and tells them that she was wrong. There are not prison escapees in her yard. There are three men who were in a plane crash. Barbara hands the phone to Artemis and to the other two men. All of them get on the phone and give the sheriff's office the full story of where they crashed approximately. You know, they're not really sure what happened, how many people were on board. And at that moment, this town had to prepare for the biggest emergency of the town's history. A lot of people in the town compared this emergency response to the emergency response that had happened a few years prior when a tornado went through the town. But other than that tornado, this was the biggest emergency the town had ever experienced. Immediately, the sheriff's office starts a phone tree and they called the hospital. The hospital called every single doctor, not only in that town, but in all of the neighboring towns. They also called all of the neighboring hospitals in the middle of the night. Because remember, the plane had crashed around 7.50 p.m. Eastern time, which is right when the sun was setting in October. So by the time these folks were getting the call that a plane had crashed, it was dark. After Johnny and his wife and the three survivors hang up with the sheriff's office, Johnny knows he and his neighbors are going to be the first responders. Johnny tells his wife to start calling all of the volunteer firefighters in the area. Now these people are young 20-something-year-old farmers who are volunteer firefighters, but these are the people who are closest to the scene. So Artemis and the two survivors show these young farmers where the crash happened. And at this point, a sheriff 
from the town had also joined them and he was going to show the other first responders as they started coming how to get to the scene as well. Where the crash had occurred was nowhere near a main road. These folks had to go down a country road and then off-road in four-wheel ATV vehicles or their, you know, four-wheel drive pickup trucks through a field and then they had to walk another quarter of a mile through the lakes that were about waist high were full of snakes and insects and bugs in the middle of the night it's pitch black at this point by the way once they got there all these folks really had were hatchets and pocket knives these young farmers start cutting the wreckage of the plane with their hatchets and they start cutting the seatbelts with their pocket knives. As they were doing that, ambulances and other firemen, other personnel were arriving at the edge of the field that had the entry to the woods. One of the young farmers remembers using his hatchet to tear apart part of the plane and create a hole in the wreckage. He looks in the hole and he sees the face of Mark Howard. And Mark Howard was alive. And Mark Howard is unconscious. He keeps hitting the plane wreckage with his hatchet. Eventually, he's able to get to Mark. He grabs Mark by the shoulders and starts pulling Mark up out of the hole. The pain, because Mark had broken his entire collarbone and had a broken hip. Mark remembers the pain kind of waking him up from this state of unconsciousness. And he remembers screaming out in pain. He remembers the first responder saying, I'm going to get you out, dude. I'm going to get you out, brother. We're going to get you. We're going to get you. You're going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Mark is in and out of consciousness, but he remembers being pulled out. It wasn't until 40 years after the crash, when they had a 40-year reunion, that the young 20-year-old farmer who pulled Mark Howard out of the plane realized that it was Mark Howard who he pulled out because he knew that the person he pulled out ended up being flown to another hospital. When they're at the 40th reunion, Mark Howard says, I had a broken collarbone and a broken hip and they flew me to another hospital. And the young farmer says, wait a minute, I think I might have been the person who pulled you out of the wreckage. They finally made this connection. The FAA said they couldn't believe anybody survived this. The wreckage was so, so bad. And just the fact of where they had crashed and how far they were from the road with the field and how miraculous. Unfortunately, by the time these first responders got there, Dean Kilpatrick, the manager who had gotten the plane door off of Gary Rossington, had passed. Ronnie was also passed away, as were the two pilots, and Steve and Cassie Gaines were killed on impact, they believe, um, from blunt force trauma. Ultimately, four doctors were able to arrive on scene from that town and from neighboring towns. Over 30 doctors were called to the Macomb Hospital to assist on scene there. Over 250 hospital personnel also showed up. There were over two dozen first responders who were able to make it to the wooded area and walk a quarter of a mile with flashlights and with anything that they could carry in backpacks and in their hands to get to the site, to get these people removed from the wreckage and to the ambulances that were at the edge of the wooded area. They were able to put these folks on stretchers, carrying them on stretchers overhead 
to the ambulances. Aerosmith was also looking at using this plane, but Aerosmith had turned them down because they didn't believe that the plane was safe. Remember, Peter Rudge was the manager of Aerosmith as well. Peter Rudge had presented this plane to Aerosmith as an option. Aerosmith said no. So then the plane owners were kind of eager to lease this plane, and they really wanted to convince Peter Rudge to use this with Leonard Skinner. So after Aerosmith turned them down due to safety concerns, the owners of the plane had painted Leonard Skinner over the nose of the plane in red, white, and blue, kind of in an attempt to sell them on the plane, and one of the first responders remembers that they had to cut open the nose of the plane to get to the two pilots and remembers seeing Leonard Skinner just completely in shambles. The luggage of everyone on board had also been thrown feet and yards away from the plane, and each piece of luggage had that luggage tag that said Survivor's Tour on it. Like I said, out of the 26 people on board, 20 of these people survived. But other than the three people who walked away from the crash, none of the other people could physically walk away from this site. They needed, I think, no, there was one other person, they said, who was able to walk themselves from the site of the plane crash to the ambulances. But everyone else had to be carried by the first responders. It was most of the crew that got carried out first because if you remember how the plane crashed, it had nosedived and most of the crew was in the back of the plane on this particular flight. You had Gary Rossington, Alan Collins, Steve and Cassie Gaines, and Ronnie in the front of the plane and Gene Odom was kind of right next to them. So the crew got carried out first and then they started to get to Gary Rossington and Alan Collins. Out of the 20 survivors, Gary Rossington and Alan Collins are the most haunted by this experience, I think, just listening to them speak because they were seated right in between Steve and Cassie and Dean. Gary and Alan sit there and wonder, how did we survive this? And they didn't because we were right next to them. But both Gary and Alan have such a strong faith in God. It is through their faith in God they are at peace with this. Other than Gary's experience of Dean pulling the plane door off of him before he passed away, despite the doctors saying that that was impossible, he also remembers being in the hospital and about two or three days after the crash, he didn't know what had happened to Ronnie and his friends. The doctors, the nurses, and his family and friends didn't want to tell him immediately what had really happened. They wanted him to heal. They didn't want possibly the news of knowing that Ronnie and everyone else had died to affect his healing process. So they kept that information from Gary for a few days. In the first three days, and again, Gary says three days, you know, the Holy Trinity, he remembers looking at the flowers in his hospital room and seeing Ronnie's face and Dean's face and Steve and Cassie's face, everybody who had passed away. He remembers just like seeing them in the flowers. Those were the people who had died but he didn't know that. He truly believes that was their spirit coming to him. He believes that really gave him strength to persevere. Artemis said something kind of interesting in one of his interviews. He really attributed his survival to his healthy lifestyle. He thinks his healthy lifestyle really helped him to pull through. The day after the crash, Artemis gave an interview 
and I'm gonna link the full video to his interview in the description below. He talks about the moment when the farmer shot him. He says, I don't blame the farmer for shooting me at all because he was just trying to protect his property. And you have to understand that when I was walking out of the woods, I looked terrible. I was limping, I was covered in blood. What would anybody think who saw that? And who had a family and a young wife and a farm and a property? He talks about that in that interview. I'll link it down below. I will also link all of the interviews that I listened to, all of the YouTube videos. Everything is going to be linked in the description below. Now, Leonard Skinner had just released an album called Street Survivors, and this was the tour that they were on. Immediately following this crash, is it not spooky enough that the luggage tags say survivors, but the album cover to Street Survivors was the band standing amidst flames. A couple of the band members, including Steve Gaines, they're standing there with their eyes shut, almost like they're dead. And it was very, very unsettling to the family and friends and fans now that this crash had happened to have that be the album cover for the album they were on tour for. So immediately following the crash, Teresa Gaines, who was Steve Gaines' wife, took the initiative to contact MCA and request, formally request, that they revoke that album cover and replace it with something more tasteful. MCA obviously agreed this was so tragic and something nobody could have possibly foreseen. So they immediately pulled the album cover and replaced it with another image of the band where they're not standing there like stiff as a board with their eyes shut. And they also removed the flames and gave just a very simple black background to the picture. I also just want to say one more thing about this crash. There were a lot of reports and rumors. There were several looters in the small town where they had crashed. You know, some people were insinuating they didn't crash in a good area. Artemis is very clear in the interview that he gives the day after the crash. He's very, very clear and insistent that this was a very, very good town. The people in this town were the sweetest, most helpful people he had ever come across in his life. And if you remember, it was a group of young 20-year-old farmers who arrived on scene, walked a quarter of a mile with these hatchets to get to a plane crash. They didn't even know who was on the plane. They took everything that they had and in the pitch black of night, walked through swampy lands, putting themselves in danger, by the way, because of all the snakes and insects and God knows what's out there. They all put themselves in danger to get to this site and to use their little hatchets or whatever they had to get these people out. And this was right around supper time. And as a farmer, after working all day outside and being hungry for dinner, you're putting all of that aside to go help these people. And I think a lot of people probably don't think about the fact that these farmers were probably starving too, yet they had the strength and they had the stamina to save 20 lives, 20 lives. It's actually something that the survivors are very upset about. They really do not want those rumors going around that there was any kind of funny business with the locals here. They want to be very, very clear. Just stop those rumors. Just stop them. Stop them because they're not true. 
Now I could also go on and on and on about all of the books and tributes that have poured through after the crash. I could go on and on about the tribute bands and where Leonard Skinner is today and where you can see them and his brother. Oh my gosh, there's so much. But I really wanted this video to just be focused on the crash. Of course, if you would like me to do another deep dive into the lawsuit that occurred after this, I can do that too. I can do a deep dive into anything. Uh, just if you have a request, you can leave it in the comments below. Or if you look in the description, I also have my email address in there. You can reach out to me on that email. You can also join Roots Music History as a member. Did you know you can become a Roots Music History member? Right next to the subscribe button is a button that says join. There are three different membership tiers that you can choose from. Level one will give you access to loyalty badges. Depending on how long you have been a subscriber for, you will be granted a loyalty badge. If you've been a subscriber for one full month, you'll get one music note, two months, two music notes, all the way up to a year, which will grant you record status. You will also get access to emojis for comments and early access to new videos. For level two, you'll get all the perks of level one plus the text messaging service. You will be notified every time a new Roots documentary is in progress. You will also be notified via text every time a video is posted. If you have a special request for the next Roots documentary, you can also text Roots Music History's production team at the same phone number that you're receiving the text alerts from. And then the level three membership is the greatest membership of all. Not only will you get all of the perks of level one and level two, but you will also be entitled to exclusive bonus features. That includes backstage passes to certain shows here in Nashville, Tennessee, tours around Nashville and Music Row, complete with little tidbits of history here and there, and live music streams. You will also get access to the full newspaper articles that are mentioned in the videos. You'll be able to read them as posts or listen to them as articles. There will also be videos where I'm just reading the newspaper articles. Every third Thursday, if you are a level three member, you can also join the other members of the Roots Music History Club and myself as we do a live coffee chat Thursdays at 10 a.m. Central Time. If you'd like to represent Roots Music at the grocery store or even if you're just on your couch watching a Roots documentary, then check out the Roots Music History merchandise store. You can get a tank top, a t-shirt, a hat, a mug, a bag, a bandana for your dog. So on the next Roots documentary, you can be drinking your wine from a Roots Music History wine glass. Or you can join our coffee chats with your Roots Music History mug. You can also just simply say thanks every time you watch a video if you are thankful for the content or if you learned something that you didn't know about. At the bottom of every video, there should be a button that says thanks. If you click that button, then you have the option to donate anywhere from $2 all the way up to $500 to Roots Music History. Of course, subscribing is free and subscribing to the channel is the best free way to promote Roots Music History to other people on the YouTube platform. You have no idea how helpful it is just to have one extra subscriber, one extra thumbs up and or a comment. Having a comment, a thumbs up and a subscribe does wonders for the YouTube algorithm and it pushes the video up in the queue so that other people are more likely to come across it and be able to watch it. You can also find Roots Music History on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And thank you for your patience. I know that I don't post every like three days or every week like some YouTube channels do, but I really try to make quality over quantity with these and I want to come to you with the absolute full story and truth and I don't want to skimp on my research so I try to post at least twice a month but I really appreciate 
you not unsubscribing if there's not a new video every week like some people do. I really appreciate that. Thank you for being patient with me and for appreciating the work that I put into these. And I will see you on the next Roots Rockumentary. Hungry for the road all my life Thirsty for adventure all my youth Chasing all my